Greetings and welcome to the Logical Belief Ministries podcast. I'm your host, Jason Mullett. Uh, you can visit our website at logicalbelief.org. You, know, you can watch these podcasts on YouTube. Uh, just search for Logical Belief, Logical Belief Ministries, and you can subscribe to the channel there. Uh, you can also find us on iTunes, just searching for Logical Belief also. You can subscribe to the feed there. Um, you can send me a word of encouragement, ask me a question, um, drop me a message. Uh, you can do that at jason at logicalbelief.org. Um, just be aware, if you do send me an email, you do give me permission to read it on the air. Um, also, uh, you can find both the audio and the video um, at the website on the top menu bar in the far right. You'll see where it says podcast. Uh, just go ahead and click on that, and you'll see both the uh, audio and the video from the previous shows on there. NorCal Fire comes to Redwood City, California, September 9th and 10th. Hosted by Striving for Eternity Ministries, NorCal Fire, designed to equip you to talk to the lost and immediately put what you learn into practice with guidance and support from seasoned evangelists. The topic is the Word of God with J.D. Hall, Carl Kirby Sr., Carl Kirby Jr., and Andrew Rappaport. There's a special debate, Is Hell Continual?, on Friday, September 9th. For details and to register, go to norcalfire.info. All right. Well, before I forget and uh, get started with today's program, I wanted to note that we do have a new contributor to the website, um, and this is uh, Caitlin Atmore. Uh, she attends uh, the same church that my wife and I do, and she's a very good writer, and uh, she has started to contribute uh, to the, the website, um, and she has posted her first blog entitled The Segregated Church. Uh, she's a very good writer. So I'd encourage you to check it out. Um, it's uh, talking about the common practice in uh, today's uh, churches about, um, you know, dividing and segregating the church up into youth groups, college groups, young adult groups, small groups, and so on. Um, elderly groups and underwater basket weaving groups and, what you know, whatever the, the flavor of the day is. Um, and so she looks into that and on whether that is uh, biblical or not. And if we should draw a line at that at some point. So check that out. A really good article. Uh, some good thoughts there. I would encourage you to check it out. Um, all right. Um, as promised last week, um, this week I want to talk about uh, something that is extremely important and is central and definitional of the gospel itself. And... Um, it should be very important to all of us as Christians who understand how we have been saved and how we are righteous before God. And this is the doctrine of justification. And this is central and core to the Protestant Reformation. Uh, in fact, when the counter-reformation from the uh, Roman Catholics uh, from Rome came about, um, and they started their opposition against the Reformation, uh, and they uh, had the Council of Trent from 1545 to 1563. Uh, what they did is they attacked uh, the doctrine of justification uh, all through the Council of Trent in both the Articles and the Canons. Um, they, they attacked the doctrine of justification as defined by the Reformers. And so today, 
uh, we want to look at what does the Roman Catholic Catechism still say about justification? You know, do they still hold to what the Council of Trent said? And we'll look at that a little bit later. Um, but are, are these still issues that matter today? You know, uh, so many people today that go by the name of Protestant have frankly given up the protest. They're not protesting anymore. They're nominal Protestants. They're Protestants in name only. It's They're only Protestants because they simply have a preference. Uh, they don't like the liturgy of the Roman Catholic Church. They prefer the fog machines and laser light shows. So that's, that's why they're Protestants. Um, or they go to some sort of Protestant denomination. Uh, fundamental and core to the reason they're Protestants doesn't come down to the doctrine of justification doesn't come down to these fundamental truths. Uh, when it comes to sound doctrine, uh, Paul warned us when he wrote to, I believe it was Timothy, it would come a day that they will not endure sound doctrine, and, and that's here, that's today. Uh, no one um, seemingly cares about these things anymore. We're in a, in a time of the mere Christianity movement where if you kind of, I guess, hold to the doctrine of the Trinity, I guess you're a Christian. Um, I, I think if many of those, if you would even press them, if uh, oneness Pentecostals are truly Christians, uh, they would uh, probably say that they are. Uh, so that collapses the mere Christianity. So now, um, you know, at some point we're going to be calling Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses Christians too. Uh, in fact, uh, the last church that I went to which uh, I'll just say I was a Calvary Chapel, um, I had to uh, make the argument uh, to someone who just didn't understand why I thought it was necessary that we witness to Jehovah's Witnesses uh, because they love Jesus. Well, I had to explain to this lady that they don't worship the same Jesus that we worship. Just because a guy calls a totem pole in his backyard Jesus and he chops it down and burns it, uh, as a sacrifice for his sins, does not mean he's a Christian. Um, he has faith in his totem pole, uh, but it's a totem pole. It's not Jesus. And if the Jesus that you worship is Michael the Archangel or the son of Sat or the the brother of Satan, then you are not worshiping the Jesus of the Bible, and therefore you are not a Christian. But does what defines Christianity, does it go beyond um, just the, um, the deity of Christ, the Trinity, the deity of the Holy Spirit, the tripersonal nature of God? <clears throat> uh, does it go beyond that? Um, if you read the book of Galatians, I think it does go beyond that. Uh, Paul makes it very clear for the Judaizers who appeared to be orthodox in all their other doctrines, they appeared to believe in the deity of Christ. Um, Paul did not question them on anything else. They were simply adding something to the gospel. They were only adding circumcision to the gospel. And Rome adds a lot more than circumcision. Uh, all the Marian dogmas, um, the sacerdotal system, the blasphemy of the mass, all these things have been added to the gospel in addition to their false view of justification. And obviously, if you don't have a correct biblical view of justification, you're always going to add things to the gospel. 
um, things like purgatory. Purgatory adds that Christ's sacrifice was not sufficient to purge you and perfect you for all time, as it says in Hebrews 10.14, that by a single offering he perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. But in Roman Catholicism, you don't have that perfect work. You don't have the perfect work of Christ. Instead, you have a sacramental system, a treadmill of sacraments that you have to be on. And if you still have venial sins, I mean, mortal sin, you're out. But venial sins, you know, you're going to go to purgatory and purgatory is going to cleanse you. But I thought the Bible tells us that the sacrifice of Christ is what cleansed us. So all these things, once you get justification wrong, you end up adding all these things to the gospel. And that's why this is so fundamental. And that's why Luther um, is often attributed with the quote, um, and it probably came from him because um, he's he's written a lot of similar things, but uh, justification is the article by which the church stands and falls, is what Martin Luther said. Um, it is in his writings, he says, because if this article, speaking of justification, stands, the church stands. If this article collapses, the church collapses. So that is what Luther said. And as a Protestant today, I hold to that. If you deny the doctrine of justification, you do not possess the gospel. And what we're going to do today is look at the difference between the Rome, uh, Rome's view of justification and uh, the Protestant biblical view of justification. Um, what I'm going to do is... Uh, what I would recommend for those of you that are new Christians, uh, getting new into uh, even Reformed theology, I would recommend that you read this book here, R.C. Sproul, What is Reformed Theology? I'm going to be reading some quotes from R.C. Sproul um, in this discussion today. So um, I'd encourage you to read that book. Um, it's, a, it's a great uh, primer, basically, on the basics of Reformed theology. So what we're going to look at today is the two ways of that justification is viewed uh, between the Roman Catholic system and the Protestant biblical system. And honestly, the, the way that we're going to talk about the way Rome looks today at uh, justification is really the same way that most synergistic systems look at justification. There's really not fundamentally much of a difference between the way the Anabaptists look at justification and the way the Catholics look at justification um, with the way uh, Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons look at it. It's all very similar. Uh, you just have a different set of works, but justification is analytic in all of those systems, and we're going to look at that. So what we're going to do is look at uh, analytic or analytical justification versus synthetic justification. Uh, the Roman Catholic view is an analytic or analytical view of justification. So the reason that we say it's analytical is because an analytical statement is true by definition. So, for example, if I said a sphere is round, that is an analytical statement. It's uh, basically a tautology. It is simply repeating the same thing using a different word. Um, so, of course, a sphere is round, because that is the definition of a sphere. Um, for example, R.C. Sproul uses this example of an analytical statement in his book. He says, um, 
the bachelor was an unmarried man. Well, of course he's an unmarried man because that's the definition of a bachelor. Um, and so Rome's view of justification is that a just man or a righteous or a good man is justified. But that's analytical. The predicate adjective in that statement, a just man is justified, justified being the predicate, does not add any new information because, of course, a just man is justified. It would be unjust if God did not justify a just man. Um, so, of course, a just man is justified. So R.C. Sproul says this, the Roman Catholic view of justification is known as analytic justification because in order for God to justify a person in the Rome, Roman system, that person must be righteous by definition. Righteousness must be inherent within the individual. This righteousness must may be rooted in the grace of God but it must become a personal, inherent, and experiential righteousness through the cooperation of good works. And so that is Rome's view of justification. It is an inherent and intrinsic justification, uh, righteousness within yourself, within the person who is justified. Whereas the biblical view is, is that our righteousness is extrinsic to us, is an alien righteousness. It is a righteousness outside of ourselves that has been applied to us. God views us in light of the righteousness of Christ. But we do not inherently and intrinsically become righteous. Uh, we do not become meritorious, inherent in ourselves, intrinsic to ourselves, so that God can permit us into his presence and grant us eternal life. Because we, in and of ourselves, become inherently righteous and good. In fact, it says in Romans 4, verse 5, And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. Notice here, Paul does not say that believes in him who justifies the just, or the good, or the righteous. No, this is not, Paul is not making the same mistake Rome makes. He's not making an analytical statement here. He's making a synthetic statement that the ungodly is justified, is declared righteous, a forensic legal declaration by God um, who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted as righteousness. The word there in Romans 4, 5, logezomai, is where we get the term imputation or impute. His faith is imputed to him as righteousness. Logezomai is counted to him as righteousness. Uh, often you'll hear, and, and recently I heard this, uh, from uh, a, a true Christian, but uh, she was uh, most likely, I mean, I believe she probably was, um, but uh, was at a Roman Catholic Mass, and that's a completely different discussion. Um, should a Christian attend the Mass? Maybe that's something we'll do at some point. Um, my answer to that would be no, but uh, we can get into the details of that. But um, who had attended a mass and she said the priest in his homily, you know, he said that we're saved by faith through grace. And, you know, so I, I don't understand what the problem is with uh, you other Protestants who say that, you know, Roman Catholics don't believe that we're saved by grace through faith. Um, of course, Rome believes we're saved by grace through faith. That's never been the issue. The issue has been the alones of the Reformation. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. 
Um, we are justified by faith alone. Those alones are very, very important, and they are core and definitional of the gospel. And the reason that the Protestant reformers uh, died for these doctrines, died for justification by faith alone. Um, the the issue between in the Protestant effort, uh, Reformation was never between Rome and the and uh, the reformers was never the necessity of grace. Um, was never the necessity of grace. Rome believes that grace is necessary. It was the sufficiency of grace. Is grace sufficient? Is it alone enough to save a person? Rome says no. The reformers said yes. And that is the difference. And so the Protestant view of justification is a synthetic view. A synthetic statement adds information about the subject in the predicate. So, for example, if I said the sphere was red, um, I would be adding in the predicate red, the predicate adjective, more information about the sphere that is not inherent in the, the definition of a sphere. Um, not all spheres are red, so but all spheres are round. And so to say that it is round is um, an analytic, uh, an analytical statement. So the Protestant view is that an ungodly man is justified, an unrighteous man, an unjust man is justified. So something new has been added to him. Uh, and so that is why we refer to it as synthetic justification. R.C. Sproul says, uh, Biblical Protestants confess belief in synthetic justification. We can observe this type of synthesis by looking at the synthetic statement, the bachelor is bald. In this statement, we do learn something new about the bachelor. Some, but not all, bachelors are bald. Baldless is not intrinsic to bachelorhood. We learn that this particular bachelor is bald by combining the idea of baldness with bachelorness. In the biblical view, we cannot be justified unless the alien righteousness of Christ is added to us in imputation. Unlike the analytic view of justification, our works do not combine with, the with this righteousness in order to make us intrinsically righteous. Our right standing with God is never based on our own holiness because the perfect righteousness of Christ is added to us, or more precisely, declared to be ours that uh, legal forensic declaration. The Protestant view is called synthetic justification. So we as Protestants view justification as synthetic. Uh, Catholics view it as analytic. Luther, in his famous formula um, in Latin, simul gistus et peccator, kind of really outlines this synthetic justification. Uh, simul justus, at the same time, righteous, et peccator, as sinner. Sinner, at the same time, righteous. Now, Luther is not saying that, uh, is not invoking a contradiction here, that we're both sinner and righteous intrinsically in ourselves. It's because he's not using it in the same sense. Uh, we are still in and of ourselves sinners, but we have an alien righteousness applied to our account, and therefore God declares us righteous uh, through faith in Jesus Christ. 
uh, in the one who has died for us, has bore our sins, canceled the record of debt, which was against us, Colossians 2.14. And so therefore, simul gestus et peccator uh, is a true statement about anyone who is a Christian. We are declared righteous before God, even while we were still sinners. In fact, it says even, even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Um, so we're going to look next into dikaio, uh, is the Greek word for justification. It means to be freed. Uh, it's sometimes translated freed, um, to justify, um, but it means to render or declare in, uh, innocent or righteous, to declare one to be righteous. And so the biblical view of justification is that it is a legal forensic declaration of righteousness. When we say forensic, we're meaning uh, in relation to a court of law. Uh, forensic, for example, comes from the Latin word forensis, uh, which um, simply means open or public court or forum. And so God has declared us within his court, within the God's judgment throne, he has declared us righteous because of the work of Christ alone. Um, in my studying of the word Greek word dikaio, um, I came across Paul's use of it here in the book of Acts, in um, Acts chapter 13, verse 39, and that is a text we're going to take a look at here, and I'm going to transition my screen here so you can see my Bible program here. And we're going to go ahead and take a look at this. Let me drag this over here. Okay, you should be able to see that. Um, and so Paul, in his first missionary journey, uh, visited uh, Antioch in Pisidia, which is in modern-day Turkey um, uh, today. Um, and he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath, and he taught the Jews there. And he, I'm going to read, begin reading here in verse 31, and then we'll get down to the verse I want to pay attention to here in verse 39. But it says, And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. This is beginning at verse 31 of Acts chapter 13. Who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us their children by raising Jesus as it is all as also it is written in the second psalm you are my son today I've begotten you and as for the fact that he raised him from the dead no more to return to corruption he has spoken in this way I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David therefore he says also in another psalm you will not let your holy one see corruption for David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sin is proclaimed to you. And in verse 39 here, and this is the verse I want to focus on today. 
and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. It says in the King James Version, which I like how the King James translates this. Um, in the ESV here, uh, the two words freed here are uh, from the Greek word dikaio to be justified. So in the King James, it actually says, and by him, all that believe are justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Um, it says, uh, Young's literal translation, I like how it says here, and from all things from which you were not able in the law of Moses to be declared righteous, in this one, everyone who is believing, who is believing, is declared righteous. The NIV, I like how it translates, um, let's transition here to the Greek text here. We have a dune thete right here, a dune thete, um, which is the aorist passive indicative second person plural of dunomahi uh, or dunomai, uh, which is where we incidentally get the word dynamite. But uh, this is the same word which is found in John 6.44, which no one can come to me, is uh, the way the ESV translates it there. Can is from the word dunomai, mahi, dunomai. And this is uh, the aorist uh, passive indicative second person plural form of dunomai. And so it would literally render here, you were not able or you do not have the ability or capacity. Um, in the same way as Jesus was saying in John 6, 44, no one has the capacity, no one has the ability to come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him on the last day. So here we have basically Paul saying that you were not able, you did not have the ability um, in uh, or capacity uh, to keep the law of Moses, to be justified in particular here. He's saying justifies here as we have uk edunothete en to numo mosios. We have here mosios, which is Moses in the genitive here, and numo, the law. So we have the law of Moses. So you did not have the ability in the law of Moses, dikaiothenai, dikaiothenai, you did not have the ability in the law of Moses to be justified, uh, to be declared righteous. You had no capacity. But then he contrasts this with Christ. And to to pas ho pisteuon dikai uh, dikai Otai, Dikaiotai, Dikaiutai, actually, Dikaiutai, which is the present tense uh, form of Dikaio, which means to be justified. So we have Tuto, which is referring to the previous him, him through him, uh, faith, those who have faith. Uh, the believing ones, pisteuon, 
are justified, present tense justified. So Paul contrasts it here uh, with through the law of Moses, you did not have a capacity or ability to be justified, but through faith in him, you are justified. He makes that distinct contrast here. Um, but what he's also pointing out here is this is not an inherent inability in the law of Moses. Uh, it says here, uh, which is you do not have the ability. It is in the third or the second person. You do not have the ability. It's not referring to the law of Moses here. The law of Moses is not what didn't have the capacity or the ability. It was you don't have the capacity or ability. In fact, it says in Romans 2.13, it says, but the doers of the law shall be justified. So it, it's not an inherent intrinsic weakness within God's law, which is why men are not justified, but it is within themselves. This inability and incapacity exists. Now, there was one doer of the law that did it perfectly. And because of that, because of his perfect obedience, uh, we can be justified. So Jesus himself demonstrates it's not the, a deficiency within the law of God um, that no one could be righteous because he perfectly followed the law of God. So that's not the issue. The issue is within ourselves. And so the reason that I, this text is so powerful, I think, here is that what Paul, this, this absolutely refutes the Roman Catholic analytic form of justification because Paul does not make the claim after declaring that you do not have the capacity or ability to be justified by the law that now by faith in Christ you will have the capacity and the ability to be justified by the law he doesn't make that claim he in fact says here and to toe uh, speaking of in him pasho pisteuon Dikai utai, dikai utai. Th through faith, you are justified, not by the law, but through faith, you are justified. What was not achievable because of your inability through the law by faith in him, speaking of Jesus, you are now justified. The first justification um, or dikai o uh, right here, dikai o. Thai dikaio thai right here um, is in the aorist tense past. You were not able to be justified, um, uh, but in the second justification, it is in the present tense. You are justified by faith. You presently have justification before God, and because of that justification, in Romans five one, we have peace with God. Uh, therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. Um, we also see, uh, let's uh, tr transition back here. We also see in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Notice that our righteousness is a righteousness from God, not from ourselves. It is a righteousness that comes from God. In Philippians 3.9, this completely puts to rest analytic justification. 
and being found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, not having that which is intrinsic to myself, inherent in myself, that, you know, I, I got grace from God and I got justification from God infused into my being. But now I have to maintain a righteousness of my own in order to be justified before God. That is that is the Roman Catholic view of justification and salvation, but that is not the biblical view, and that is not what Paul is saying here in Philippians 3.9. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that, that comes from the law, uh, because we have that inherent inability, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God, same thing that Paul said in, 2 Corinthians 5.21, a righteousness from God, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So there we also um, have here Romans 5.1, therefore since we have been justified, dikaio, it's the Greek word there again, by faith we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, uh, the next thing I want to look at is the word logizomai. Um, and this is where we get the doctrine of imputation. Imputation is an actual biblical word, and it is logizomai. Um, it means to uh, be credited or to be counted, to be reckoned, to be regarded, to be accounted, um, are the different ways uh, I found most translators to use uh, to translate the word logizomai. But it means to impute, to give, to reckon, uh, to esteem, uh, to suppose, uh, to think of. And God thinks of us as righteous because of the righteousness of Christ given to us. And we see in Romans chapter 4, and actually, let me see, let me quickly look that up to see how many times uh, Paul actually uses the term logizomai in Romans chapter 4. I was really astounded in looking at that recently, so I didn't have that prepared. So let's just take a look here. Uh, da -da -da. Let's see if we can find that here. Let's search should have had this prepared but here we go this is how we do things do it live on the air so in Romans chapter 4 uh, Paul uses logizomai uh, let's see here one I think a total of 11 times in just Romans chapter 4. So we can see how important this doctrine is to Paul. So in Romans chapter 4 alone, he uses it about 11 times. But it says in Romans chapter 4, beginning at verse 2, it says, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does he? What does Scripture say? And this is uh, from Genesis chapter, I believe, fifteen. Um, let's actually see that real quick. I believe. Uh, what does Scripture say? Let's check the cross reference on that. 
Um, Abraham believed. Uh, Genesis 15.6, yes. I don't know why it was escaping me. I knew that reference. But uh, Genesis 15.6, Paul quotes. James quotes this, and Paul quotes this repeatedly in Galatians also. Uh, it says in Romans chapter two, uh, chapter 4, beginning at verse 2, I'm reading from the ESV, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted, logizomai, to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted, logizomai, imputed as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted, logizomai, imputed as righteousness. Um, in Second Corinthians 5.19, uh, it says, That is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting, not imputing. Here we see the opposite here, not imputing, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. When God does not count your trespass against you, then you are saved, then you have been saved. And this is a great text to demonstrate to ask anyone in 2 Corinthians 5.19 if the word cosmos always has to mean every single person in the world. And it's so clear in so many places. Jesus, for example, in John 17 said, and this is kind of going off into a rabbit trail here, but let's talk about this for, just for a little bit. In John 17, he says in his high priestly prayer, I'm not praying for the world. I'm praying for those you have given me out of the world. So if cosmos always has to mean every single person who has ever lived, Jesus said he's not praying for every single person who has ever lived. Cosmos doesn't mean that. Cosmos is often used in a universal sense uh, to denote God's love for people in the whole world, uh, for his salvific love and the fact that he does not count the trespasses, uh, their trespasses against them from people in the whole world, not just the Jews, but those in the whole world. And so that's what he's saying here in 2 Corinthians 5.19 is that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Uh, a really good question you can do for somebody who looks at all the, uh, like John 3.16 as a universal text, um, is you can take them to Revelation uh, chapter 21, and you can, you can read in verse 8, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Just ask them, is God counting the sins of these people against them? Is he counting the sins of these people against them? Does, does God not count the sins of every single person who has ever lived against them. Does God do that? Every single person who has ever lived, does God not count their sins against them? Well, it's obvious that God does count the sins of particular people against them because they go to hell. So if they allow a distinction there, then when you take them to 2 Corinthians 5.19 and remind them that they said that God does count for some people their sins against them, 
then read Second Corinthians 5.19. This is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. If there are people in hell, God is counting their trespasses against them. So world does not mean every single person who has ever lived. And so therefore, their insistence that that means that in John 3.16 uh, collapses because they make the distinction here, uh, but they won't do it in John 3.16. But that's another topic. So we see here that we are justified, we are declared righteous before God, and we are declared righteous by God imputing and counting us um, the righteousness of God to us, counting our faith as righteousness. And we know from Philippians 1.29 that it has been granted uh, not only for you to uh, not only for uh, you to believe on his name, but also to suffer for his sake. And so faith is a gift from God. The faith by which we are justified has been given to us as a gift from God. So let's just read some of the canons of the Council of Trent and then a little bit in the Roman Catholic Catechism to see if um, are we... Um, as Protestants, as, as Christians today that say Roman Catholicism is a false, has a false gospel that provides no hope, that provides no true righteousness, that does not have an offering which perf that perfects anyone. Um, if, are, are we just being unreasonable? Um, are we not properly representing Rome? And so what I'm going to do here is um, read some of the canons of the Council of Trent. In particular, let's, we're just going to read three of them in this case, but canon 9, 23, and 24. The first one is, If anyone saith that by faith alone the impious is justified, which is exactly what it says in Romans 4, 5. If anyone saith that by faith alone the impious is justified, they're anathematizing Paul here. In such wise as to mean that nothing else is required to cooperate. Notice the synergism here. Notice the requirement for cooperating in order to obtain the grace of justification, and that is not in any way necessary that he be prepared and disposed by the movement of his own will. Let him be anathema. So the question I have for you guys out there that do hold to a synergistic form of salvation. As I read these canons and these chapters from the Council of Trent and from the Roman Catholic Catechism, ask yourself, who are you more closely aligned to? Are you more closely aligned to the biblical Protestant view of justification and imputation? Or are you more closely aligned to what Rome teaches here? Just, you know, it's a question that you need to ask yourself. And I, my prayer is that you sincerely look at this. Um, in Canon 23, if one saith that a man once justified can sin no more, nor lose grace, and that therefore he that falls and sin was never truly justified, or on the other hand, that he is able during his whole life to avoid all sins, even those that are venial, except by a special privilege from God, as the church holds in regard of the Blessed Virgin, let him be anathema. So notice here that if, if anyone says that a man once justified can sin no more, nor lose grace. Now, we would not hold to the second uh, can sin no more. Of course, 
someone who is justified can still sin, uh, nor lose grace. They say that you can lose grace once you have been truly justified. If you hold to that, you are holding to what Rome teaches here. Um, and that therefore he that falls and sins was never truly justified, which is what we say. We say that when one truly falls away from the faith, it demonstrates that they were never truly justified. It says in First John 2.19, it says those that went out from us went out so that it might be demonstrated that they were not of us. Um, or on the other hand, that he is able during his whole life to avoid all sins, even those that are venial, um, except, and we don't hold to that, um, except by a special privilege from God, as the church holds in regards of the Blessed Virgin, which is blasphemous because only there was only one who was able in his whole life to avoid all sins, even venial sins. And they're saying they're attributing that to to Mary here, that uh, she was able to do that. Um, let him be anathema, is what they say. In Canon 24, it says, If anyone saith that the justice received is not preserved and also increased. So justification is increased before God through good works. But that... The said works are merely the fruits and signs of the justification obtained, but not the cause of the increase thereof. Let him be anathema. This is a direct attack against the gospel itself here in Canon 24. Um, this is the way Rome describes justification. I want to get through here pretty quickly. This is in chapter 7 of the Council of Trent. Um and it says what the justification of the impious is and what are the causes thereof. This disposition or preparation is followed by justification itself, which is not remission of sins merely, but also the sanctification and renewal of the inner inward man. So notice how justification to the Council of Trent is confused here with sanctification and the renewal of in, the inward man. They say that justification itself is the renewal of the inward man. No, justification is God declaring us righteous in Christ. Sanctification is the process by which he conforms us into the image of his son. Um, they also say here the instrumental cause is the sacrament of baptism they're saying this is the instrumental cause of justification. The instrumental cause is the sacrament of baptism. So not faith, uh, but the sacrament of baptism, which is the sacrament of faith, without which faith no man has ever been justified. So they say just that faith is necessary, but notice how they don't say that it is sufficient. Uh, lastly, the alone formal cause is the justice of God, which... Not that whereby he himself is just, but that whereby he makes us just, that to wit, with which we have been endowed by him, are renewed in the spirit of our mind, and we are not only reputed, but are truly called and are just. Having re receiving justice within us, notice the intrinsic language here, each one according to his own measure, which the Holy Ghost distributes to everyone as he wills, according to each one's proper disposition and cooperation. Notice the necessity here of our cooperation. 
or God cannot do this. Um, synergism at its core. Um, the said justification of the impious, when by the merit of the same most holy passion, the charity of God is poured forth by the Holy Ghost in the hearts of those that are justified and is inherent therein. Whence man through Jesus Christ, in whom he is engrafted, receives in the said justification, together with the remission of sin, all these gifts infused at once, faith, hope, and charity. So notice how the Roman Catholic Church talks about an infused righteousness versus we hold to an imputed righteousness. Logizomai, counted to us as righteous. Not that we are made intrinsically righteous in and of ourselves, and then we work this out and we maintain this righteousness by our, um, by our merits. In chapter 11 of the Council of Trent, it says, uh, on keeping the commandments and the necessity and possibility thereof, that the observance of the commandments of God is impossible for one that is justified, that the observance of the commandments of God is impossible for one that is justified, for God commands not impossibilities. Really? Really? When Jesus said, be therefore perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, are you actually that Pelagian to believe that you actually have the capacity and the ability to be perfect? Did not, Acts 13.39, just say, you do not have the ability, you do not have the capacity to keep the law of Moses, to keep the law of God. Peter says, be holy, um, that God says, be holy as I am holy. Can you be as holy as God? God's commands for perfection and holiness should humble us and bring us before the cross and put our faith and trust in the one alone who can justify us and the, the one alone who can declare us righteous, not by anything in ourselves, but that which is a gift from God, a free gift from God, uh, not to be coerced by any human will. Uh, for God forsakes not, this is still in chapter uh, 11, it says, For God forsakes not those who have been once justified by his grace, unless he be first forsaken by them. Wherefore, no one ought to flatter himself up with faith alone, fancying that by faith alone he has made an error and will obtain inheritance. Notice how they repudiate faith alone and that if we forsake him, that he will forsake us. Here's the point. I love how MacArthur says this. If we could lose our salvation, we would. It is by the power of God that he is the one who is the author and the finisher of our faith. Having confidence in this, Philippians 1, 6, that he who began a good work in you will complete it in the day of Christ Jesus. Our confidence needs to be in God, in Christ, who is the one working in and through us by his spirit to carry us through until the end, to sanctify us and bring us to glorification. In chapter 16 of the Council of Trent, it says, Before uh, on the fruit of justification, that is, on the merit of good works, on the nature of that merit. It says, Before men, therefore, who have been justified in this manner, whether they have uh, preserved uninterrupted the grace received, or whether they have recovered it when lost. 
So notice here that they affirm that whether you have preserved uninterruptedly in your life the grace that you received or whether you recovered it when it was lost, you can lose this grace and then you can recover it again and then you can lose it and then you can recover it uh, basing uh, upon how you live your life. Um, they also say here that we are justified from it being inherent in us. The same is the justice of God because that it is infused into us of God through the merit of Christ. So notice how they they acknowledge that the merit of Christ is required, but it is not sufficient for the salvation of any person. And the word of God is clear. Hebrews ten fourteen. He has perfected by a single offering. He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Christ has completed the work for his people. He will actually save his people from their sins. Um, in the Roman Catholic Catechism, um, this here is my copy of the Catechism. I don't know when this one here was second edition. Uh, I'm not sure what the published date of this one is. Uh, 97, I think. So this is recent, probably the most recent one here. And in paragraph uh, 1992, in the Roman Catholic Catechism, present-day teaching, the Council of Trent is not a 16th century doctrine that Roman Catholic Church no longer adheres to. In paragraph 1992, it says, Justification has been merited for us by the passion of Christ, who offered himself on the cross as a living victim, holy and pleasing to God, whose blood has become instrument of atonement for the sins of all men. Notice he atoned for all men's sins. If that's true, if that sacrifice perfected all men, if uh, Colossians 2.14, it canceled the record of debt, uh, which was against us, nailing it to the cross. If he canceled the record of debt for all men, then God is not counting anyone's trespasses against them. Everyone will be saved. Justification is conferred in baptism. Notice the reaffirmation of the Council of Trent is conferred in baptism, the sacrament of faith. It conforms us to the righteousness of God, which makes us inwardly just by the power of his mercy. Its purpose is the glory of God and of Christ and the gift of eternal life. And then in paragraph 1993, justification establishes cooperation between God and grace and man's freedom. On man's part, it is expressed by the assent of faith in, to the word of God, which invites him to conversion, and in the cooperation of charity with the prompting of the Holy Spirit, who precedes and preserves his assent. If you are a synergist, and that is how you look at justification, then you believe in the same gospel that Rome believes. And then they quote the Council of Trent, uh, 1547. 
When God touches man's heart through the illumination of the Holy Spirit, man himself is not inactive while receiving that inspiration. Since he could reject it, yet without God's grace, he cannot, by his own free will, move himself towards justice in God's sight. That's from the Council of Trent. So the Roman Catholic Church still holds to the Council of Trent. Um, and if that is your view of the gospel, what I just read there, then you are a Roman Catholic. And you are not a Protestant. Alrighty, uh, that is um, all I have today. Um, hopefully that was helpful to you. Uh, I hope that's edifying to the body of Christ and helpful to you guys out there listening today. So next week, don't know what the topic's going to be. We're going to have Stan back uh, again to talk about um, Freemasonry. And uh, not sure yet what I'm going to talk about next week, but uh, we'll figure it out. The Lord will bring something on my heart. So, alrighty. We will see you guys next week, Lord willing. Not inherit God's kingdom.